So before I begin the talk, can you hear me? No. Okay. No. How about now? Any better? How's that? Barely. There's, how about now? That's better. Okay. Well, that's all I have to say tonight. <laughs> um, actually, and please wave if, if the sound isn't good, because things change, right? We're not exactly in control of reality, which you may have noticed in the last 24 hours. Um, but one thing I like to say is um, really be curious about how to listen to the talk as practice. Like, it's not, this isn't time out. I mean, you know, you could take time out, that's fine, but even time out is practice. And, and it's really an interesting um, inquiry about how to listen to the talk and relax and you don't have to sit formally or anything, but how to do it as practice rather than just TV or rather than just entertainment. And you can be entertained, but do if you're going to be entertained, which, you know, my, I have my doubts with this talk, but if you're going to be entertained, see what it's like to do entertainment as practice. Like, really be curious about oh, how to pay attention to the living reality that's happening right now in whatever form it's coming to you, good or bad, you like it or you don't like it, all is part of practice. <clears throat> um, so, oh, this kind of goes along with what I just said, so I'll throw it in. This is from Stephen Batchelor. He's talking about, well, what is, what is it to meditate? What is meditation? He said, to meditate is not to empty the mind and gape at things in a trance-like stupor. <laughs> Nothing significant will ever be revealed by just staring blankly at an object long and hard enough. To meditate is to probe with intensity excuse me, is to probe with intense sensitivity each glimmer of color, each cadence of sound, each touch of another's hand, each fumbling word that tries to utter what cannot be said. So he's pointing to what we're doing here. We're starting to pay attention to the human experience and start to get become more intimate with the color, with the texture, with the sound, with the cadence, with the feel of it, with the look of it, with the smell of it, with the taste of it, with the touch of it. And, and of course, a lot of what we're talking about is just not even any further than your seat. And then there also is the rest of it all. And that we really want to come into, and this is a funny term to use in terms of uh, dharma, we want to come into relationship. Dharma is about building relationship with reality and seeing what happens when we become very intimate, very close in that relationship with reality. And here I'm gonna I'm gonna read uh, one of my favorite quotes, like of all time, Buddhist quotes. You know, which there are a lot of good Buddhist quotes, but this is the best one. No, this is this is the one I, one that I like, and I've said many times. And a number of teachers here at Spirit Rock have used this, and of course in the Zen tradition, it's it's said. It's from Zen Master Dogen. He said to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened or become intimate with all things. To study the Buddha way is to study the self, to study what's right here for all of us. 
And to study the self is to forget the self or relax the usual idea, belief, identification with self that we have. And when that, and when we forget the self, to forget the self is to be awakened or to become intimate with all things. And it's a beautiful, beautiful quote, a beautiful understanding of Dharma practice. And we're here, we're studying the self and we're studying the aging self in a certain way. But, it, but what's interesting is that's not the end of the story for Dogen. You know, that, that part is quoted many, many times. And I've been a t- Spirit Rock teacher for some 20 years. I've never heard anybody else quote the rest of the quote. So I want to quote the rest of the quote because it's interesting what Dogen is pointing at when he says to study the Buddha ways, to study the self, to study the self is to forget or let go of the self. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. To be intimate with the myriad things is to drop off body and mind and the body and mind of others. To be intimate or to be awakened with the myriad things is to drop off body and mind and drop off the body and mind of others. No trace of enlightenment remains and this no trace continues endlessly. Okay, everybody understand that? No, good. You're not supposed to understand it. You're supposed to practice and then discover what the hell is this guy talking about, right? To be intimate with the myriad things is to drop off body and mind, drop off the body and mind of others. No trace of enlightenment remains and this no trace continues endlessly. So he's pointing at the potential for Dharma the freedom that's possible, or the awakening that's possible, or the realization that's possible, in a beautifully Zen way, in a beautiful Dogen way. And he's also pointing at something that's not knowable, just using our concepts, right? Right, you know, you heard what I said, there wasn't anything you didn't understand in terms of the language. But what does he mean? We're not going to figure that out by thinking about it. It's okay, it's fine to think about it, but practice, paying attention to what's sitting in your seat, that's where the answer to Dogen's statement is. And so he's pointing at something that is mysterious and not exactly knowable just by thinking about and is has something to do with the Uh, an infinite discovery of reality, right? There's no trace of enlightenment remains and this no trace continues endlessly. And so I was thinking about this in this talk tonight and I remembered something and it's nice that we have some age in the room, you know. Sometimes it's really hard when you just get 40-year-olds and all. You know, <laughs> but um, but um, do you, do you, any of you remember being kids? And when you were kids, you thought that adults really knew what was happening, or what was going on, or what reality was about. Anybody remember that as a kid? And then at some point, you realize, oh, the adults don't know what the hell is going on. They're kind of making it up. That's, that's an important moment. It was, was an important moment for me. It's like, whoa, these people are just pretending that they know what's going on. You know, and they have some idea and they have their, you know, their understanding, but it wasn't quite as deep as I thought it was. And, you know, now who are the adults, Right? We all are, right? Everybody get that they might not know everything that's going on? I mean, really, I mean that quite seriously. 
because I think that's a really important understanding for us and an important part of practice is to see that, you know, we know some things and we know a lot and there's also a lot that we don't know. Um, Krishnamurti, who was a teacher in the last century, and Krishnamurti wrote a book, um, and I love the title of his book. The title was Freedom from the Known. Freedom from the Known. And I, I thought he kind of summed it up in the title so well that I never read the book. And I'm being totally honest about that. I'm not kidding, even though it's a little bit humorous, but really, he said it all in the title. That there's something about knowing that's great and good and all, but there's a certain kind of freedom that we have when we're not totally dependent, we're not totally identified, we're not totally believing the known. The known is not the end of the story. There's more to discover. <clears throat> and one of the Zen teachers who I used to see a little bit sometimes, uh, who was a Korean Zen master, Sun Sanim. How many people ever knew or sat with Sun Sanim? Yeah, not too many. He only, yeah, good, good, good. good. And he, he, would, he would be up there, a little guy like me, and he, he would have his little stick and he would... Only don't know. That was his teaching, right? Only don't know. And, you know, he'd say, you know, do you know what this is? You don't know what this is. And he would drink his water. And he was great, really. And he was great because he was open to reality of, that was known and beyond the known. And he understood that reality itself had this unknowable quality. And it may be one of the themes that's strong in Zen practice, because I noticed I have a lot of Zen quotes here. This is a story from Suzuki Roshi. Somebody said, he was talking with Suzuki Roshi, he said, you talked about the first principle again, but I still don't know what it is, I said to Suzuki Roshi. I don't know, he said, is the first principle, right? And so I'm pointing at this a little because one of the things that happens as we uh, mature and as we keep maturing and as maturing continues and we get older is we know a lot. And, it, and it's true. We know a lot about the world. We know a lot about ourselves. We know a lot about life. We know a lot about things. We know a lot about whatever we've attended to in our life. Like whatever we paid attention to, whether it's families or science or history or whatever it might be, or religion or culture or politics. Or, we, we all know a lot. But that knowing has its pluses and minuses. And conceptual knowledge is not exactly experiential knowledge. Conceptual knowledge is not necessarily experiential knowledge. You know, conceptual knowledge can bind us to what we know. But it may not be an absolute truth or, the, or, or the, the whole story, as I say. Because we can learn about things and we can learn a lot of facts or a lot of ideas or whether it's science or culture or politics. And we can even learn a lot about Dharma. You know, there's a lot of Dharma books out. Have you, have you noticed that? I mean, when I was a kid and got interested in the Dharma, there were like five books. And that was a big deal. Oh, there's a Dharma book, you know. And they were, you know, a few of them were even kind of readable. And uh, now there's like, I go in and I look at the Dharma section 
actually, I'll, I'll be even more honest. My friends send me the books they write. I can't even read them because I've seen so many Dharma books now. And, you know, there, you know, a lot of them are really good. It's not a bad thing. But where are we going to learn the Dharma? We can learn the Dharma from books, and that's a certain kind of knowledge, and it has its benefit and all good. But if we really want to know the Dharma, pay attention while you're here. And really, when I, what I mean when I say, while you're here, while you're alive, pay attention. Because that's where the Dharma is. Everything in that book, in those books that are being talked about, that's being pointed to, that's being held up as the potential, that's all available right here. No, actually, nowhere else, right here in this human life. And it's why, um, it's why in Buddhism, a human life is considered very precious because this amazing potential that's sitting right here of intelligence, of heartfulness, of kindness, of wisdom, of the potential for realization or a, another, uh, uh, another dimension of maturation than the usual conventional levels of maturation. And so it's good to learn things, it's good to know things, it's good to have a lot of knowledge, a lot of learning, a lot of, you know, smarts, but not if it cuts us off from more knowing or future knowing or the things we don't know, especially about reality and about what does it mean to be a human being? Or what's the potential for waking up? <clears throat> you know, we, we love to know, we take a lot of pride in knowing. And that all has its pluses and minuses. Anybody here know who H.L. Mencken is, was? Okay, great, that takes a little age, thank you. Really, he was a journalist in the 20th century, but quite a while ago. Yeah, and he, was, he, he liked to uncover stuff, and he, he was good at what he did. And he wrote, H.L. Mencken wrote, he said, penetrating so many secrets, we cease to believe in the unknowable. Penetrating so many secrets, we cease to believe in the unknowable. But there it sits, nevertheless, calmly licking its chops. <laughs> and so there's something really great about conceptual knowledge and learning, but there's something about experiential knowledge that I um, respect highly. Meaning the knowledge we discover that's sitting here in our seats, the knowledge that comes from our direct experience, the knowledge that's not based on past ideas, the knowledge that's reality revealing itself. <clears throat> One of my teachers, Hamid Ali, he said, if we understand it completely, he's talking about knowledge, he said, if we understand things completely, it isn't reality. That he pointed to a component in reality that was not known, that was part of reality, which is the unknowable or the mysteriousness of this living reality that we are, right? Not just that we know, but we are this living reality. <clears throat> So there are a few sides to the knowing and the not knowing. And let's, we'll, we'll look at them. I'll talk about it a little bit. So one thing that's important when I talk about not knowing, um, uh, not knowing doesn't mean we don't know. Okay, I told you this is a Zen teaching a little bit. Not knowing, it means we know what we know and there's more to know. It's not finite knowing. 
And so you don't have to get rid of what you know or get rid of your brain or not have a brain or not use a brain or not think about things. But watch out if your thinking, your concepts, your ideas, what you know starts to limit you or define you or uh, concretize your experience of reality. Because things are mysterious, not because they're unknowable, but because what is knowable is infinite. What is knowable, what, it's infinitely knowable reality. And it keeps revealing more of itself for us. And it's even beautiful, if you really read the Buddhist texts, I mean, the Buddha totally, completely awakened, and he keeps learning, right? This is after he's totally awakened, free, you know, I mean, you know, he, he got the goodies. But he kept learning, he kept discovering more about how to be, how to work with people, what, what blocked people, how to teach, etc., etc. And it's beautiful to, to read that. And so there's something about finding our intimacy with knowing and not knowing both. Again, from Stephen Batchelor, he says, as mindful awareness becomes stiller and clearer, as mindful awareness becomes stiller and clearer, experience becomes not only more vivid, but simultaneously more baffling. When we become still, clear, experience becomes not only more vivid, but simultaneously more baffling. The more deeply we know something in this way, in this what I would call experiential knowledge way, the more deeply we know something in this way, the more deeply we don't know it. Now that's a, an interesting kind of intimacy with reality. And, you know, again, just the way my mind works, but I always think about when you become lovers with somebody and it's like, oh, you really want to know them and it's great and you get close and you get really close, you get as close as you can and you realize, oh my God, there's somebody here, I don't even know who this is. And you're knowing them as deeply as you can at that moment and you don't know them also. And one of the beautiful things in long-term relationships is when that can keep, stay alive. You know, when you've been with somebody, a partner, or, you know, marriage, or, and you know somebody for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, however many years, and then you realize, oh, you don't know them also. Here's a little, this is a little Eugene uh, quirk. <laughs> um, you know, I have a daughter, I've had a daughter for many, many years now, and when she was a kid, she had a little bit of interest in meditation, but she really didn't want to sit or anything, but she wanted to know, you know, what is dad doing? So, at, so I would play this game with her sometimes, really when she was a kid, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten, some, somewhere around that, where we would sit and we would just look at each other, and she would have to see that I'm not her dad. And I would have to see that she's not my daughter. And we would do it for 10, 20, 30 seconds tops. And she'd go, oh, uh, stop. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. And I, I respected that. I was like, okay, that's plenty. You, you got a little hit of that. And, and of course, I also explained, it doesn't mean you're not my daughter. I'm not your dad. It means that's just one role that we're in, and it's a beautiful thing, and I love my daughter totally. And, but there is something illuminating when we, the people we know, daughter, parents, lovers, mates, when we see we don't know them also. And, um, and this worked great with my daughter until she, maybe until she was about 12 or 13. And then, you know, I would, <laughs> she was creative. She's, I would tell her to do something and she'd say, you're not my dad. <laughs> and so I stopped doing it at that point. 
It's wild to watch somebody grow up, really. What a wild thing. Because you know them from all these phases of life, right? I mean, and she's a total adult now, and uh, it's just wild to even watch this, you know, this phase of her adulthood now. Amazing. <clears throat> so, um, so one of the phrases in Zen that I love about this teaching is they say, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. And they're pointing at the fact that the knowing can get in the way of the intimacy or of the awakening, of the knowingness, of the closeness, of the contactfulness of consciousness with what it's knowing, whether it's internal or external. And so seeing that we don't know frees us, opens us. And so one of the reasons why I'm happy to give this talk, even on the first night of the retreat, is you don't have to know what the hell's going to happen here. And of course, you know you don't know, right? Everybody knows that, right? But don't you know how often we think we know what's going to happen? Or we pretend we know? Or we tell ourselves we know? Or we tell ourselves some idea, oh, this will happen day two. I know what happens on day two. You know, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't happen. We don't actually know. We can have our ideas, and our ideas can be good ideas. So I find it to be an exciting part of practice when I stop even worrying about knowing at all. And I just give myself to what's here to what's happening. And I don't have to like what's happening. I'm not saying, oh, you're going to then have a blissful reality and wow, you're just going to have a great time. Doesn't matter. Even if, you know, you're 80 and you've only got 25 more years, you know, based on, on, on his new calendar. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, um, <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying, but that goes in line with this, <laughs> this talk. <laughs> So I can say that to you honestly. <laughs> uh, but I find it so interesting to uh, begin to relax the knowing and see that reality is not static. It's not an idea. And I love the idea that everybody get that reality is not static, right? There's no stasis in reality. In fact, what happens when we let go of the knowing is it starts to become ex-stasis or ex-static. And that's an interesting relationship with reality, is to start to be intimate with it in an ecstatic way. And it's a beautiful term, ecstatic. The uh, definitions, a person subject to mystical experiences or ecstatic is to be happy and joyful with a mystical self-transcendence. And, you know, not knowing reveals the dynamism of reality as a living dynamism, which is here for us to experience. That's all true. But even more true is, is what we are. We are a living reality. Can you find a part of you that's not a living reality? That's not alive? That's not changing every moment? That's not um, doing what you tell it to do? Of course, that happens all the time. And it can be very interesting to start to um, relax our knowing both conceptual knowing and um, uh, both conscious and unconscious knowing, you know, the unconscious beliefs and ideas and framework. Because things are changing so quickly for all of us. And I, I mean that quite sincerely. However many years you've had, they're gone. 
right? This is true for all of us. Nobody escapes this reality. And it's really always very moving to me to really think about, oh, all those years and all this stuff happened, you know, and good and bad and all mixed or whatever, whatever it was, gone. It's all gone. There's just this moment now is here and alive. And all those moments were alive. And now this moment is here and alive. And so there's a quality of mind or heart that goes with this that Suzuki Roshi talked about. He said, and he called it beginner's mind, beginner's mind. And he said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. So one of the things for those of us who've been practicing 10, 20, 30 years, I've been practicing 30 years now, is not to become an expert, but to let reality keep revealing itself. There's more to learn. There's more awakening. There's more waking up. There's more discovery. There's more, and I, this is Eugene, you may not agree with this word, but there's more wow to reality. Like, we don't know what the hell is going to happen, really. And I'll, I'll, again, I'll be personal. I had a, a big accident about oh, a year and a half ago, and I wasn't expecting a big accident. I had a bike accident. I like to bike or cycle. And, uh, and I was on the Buddhist bike pilgrimage, right? You know, perfect. And uh, here, I'll tell you here, this is a little bit odd, but... I don't mind being odd. Um, uh, I was on the Buddhist bike pilgrimage. I'd done it two times. I'd had a great time. It's a, I can't remember, 140 mile ride over two days. And, you know, they always had, you know, 26,000 breaths or something on their flyer. And, um, and, um, and, and they always had me do a little teaching of some kind when I went on it. And so they wanted me to do the first talk. For the and it, we were leaving from Spirit Rock of the community hall, and you know it's about a hundred people, eighty people or something riding, and um, and they and they all, and they don't say, oh, what would you like to talk about? No, no, they tell me what to talk. The Buddhist bike pilgrimage, so you know, so they said, oh, you talk about not knowing, right? And I'm like, okay, I like to talk about not knowing. So I gave a talk about not knowing, like, you know, we're going to do this ride, we don't know what'll happen. And then, of course, I gave them an experiential about it, right? I had a big, a serious accident on the downhill. And, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a surprise. But, and, it, and you know, and amazing, it's, you know, I'm amazed I'm here, I'm happy to be here, all good, you know, I'm doing fine, you don't have to worry about me, but... It was wild to see, yeah, I can't even do it. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Like that, w w reality changes. And we never know when reality is going to change, either in small ways or in big ways. The big ways are more dramatic, so they catch our attention. But really, reality is changing all the time. <clears throat> so... What are we doing? I started at 7.40, so I've got a little time left. Um, so one of the things that beginner's mind and not knowing um, helps support is not um, doing as part of practice. Not doing. Like part of practice is learning how to do, and part of practice is learning how to not do how to just be and pay attention to beingness that's here. And, and it's a beautiful uh, part of the art of meditation, part of the contemplative art. And in one way you can think about it is think about any great artist you've ever seen. You know, Nureyev, or uh, I think her name was Fontaine, Nureyev and Fontaine. Margot Fontaine, yeah, Nureyev and Fontaine. I actually saw them when I was a, a young man, very young man in Los Angeles. 
and, and I'd never been to the ballet before. They were phenomenal. And I didn't, I didn't have any um, sophistication around that stuff, but it didn't matter because what they did looked effortless because they had given themselves to it totally. And they'd worked hard and they'd practiced hard and they'd done all that, but they'd learned how to make effort that became effortless. And that's part of what happens in meditation. We make some effort, right? You've been making effort today to be here, to be present. And part of that effort is to, is to learn how to orient towards being here, letting go of, you know, just thinking about things and doing other stuff. And then it's also important to learn how to relax with what's happening moment by moment by moment. And so the effort and effortlessness start to come together in meditation practice. And it's a beautiful skill. And the Buddha talked about it. He talked about the kind of uh, effort one makes or the dedication one makes and the giving oneself that happens in the practice. And, and you start to see at some point, oh, you don't do the Dharma. That's not how it works. You don't do the Dharma. The Dharma does you. You give yourself to the Dharma and it starts to have its impact in ways we actually often can't even imagine or can't believe we can relax or let go or open up or be free in that way until it happens, until the Dharma does us in that way. And it's beautiful, you know. And so I'm hoping to rouse your interest and your curiosity to give yourself to practice in whatever way works for you so you can start to see what is, what's the potential here? What's possible here? And, and you don't, and you, I'm not saying, oh, you should get enlightened tonight. I mean, if it happens, come and talk to me or Anna or James, but because it could happen. And notice, most of us don't believe that at all. Like that's not even in the realm of possibilities, but it is in the realm of possibility. It, ha- it can happen, <laughs> I've got to get this down, like that sometimes, but it's not how it's happened for me. So I'm into dedication and, and curiosity and, and a joyful interest to learn about reality and learn about who this is sitting in this seat and what this is. And it calls for our, our honesty and our truth and our dedication. And then this quality of both knowing and not knowing. Knowing and not knowing. So to know, oh, I want to be here in the moment. And then also see, I don't know how to be here in the moment. Right? I, I know a little bit how to do that but maybe there's more for me to learn. Or I trust what I know, but I don't want to just define it by what I know. And I don't have to go searching for more, but I'm open to learning. I'm open to letting the Dharma reality show me more to discover what I don't know. Here's a little poem from Ryokan. Um, He said, the bamboo grove in front of my hut He he was Japanese, practiced in Japan. The bamboo grove in front of my hut, every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. That's, That's knowing how to be present for reality. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. And even if you tire of it, that's not a problem. But pay attention to that. That could wake you up. <laughs> don't, I mean, it's one of the beautiful things about the Dharma is you don't have to actually get rid of anything. Reality is here. Awakening it happens in human reality. It doesn't happen in human fantasy or in some other realm. It happens right here in this human realm. 
So we want to use what we know to establish mindfulness and awakeness and then see what's here, see what happens. Let it be fresh, even if it's boredom, let the boredom be fresh. Don't think you know it totally yet. See, see what happens if you give yourself to boredom. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of anything, any feeling, if you're willing to pay attention to it or be intimate with it rather than judge it or judge yourself or think, oh, this is right or wrong. But see what happens to reality as you become intimate with it. Suzuki Roshi said, he said, when I realized no moment could be repeated, when I realized no moment could be repeated, I was enlightened. Now that's an important statement that we could all just contemplate for quite a while. So practice. What a beautiful blessing to start to reveal reality in this way. And even, even the difficult stuff, we don't have to get rid of it or judge ourselves or judge the practice. We have to, what helps, learn how to pay attention even if you're irritated, even if you're pissed off, even if you're bored, even if you're sad, even if it's difficult. Pay attention. What is that? What is the totality of that experience? Thoughts, feelings, sensations, affect, mind, heart, body. It's all happening right here, now. <clears throat> and the not knowing can be quite revealing of reality. Ryokan poem, he said, with no mind the flower opens, with no mind the flower opens, with no mind the butterfly comes, when the butterfly comes the blossom opens, when the blossom opens the butterfly comes, I do not know others, others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. When the butterfly comes, the blossom opens. When the blossom opens, the butterfly comes. I do not know others. Others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. The Buddha said, he said, the committed life, this committed life, the holy life, the committed life is lived for the sake of seeing into things and understanding them. It's another metaphor for waking up. But he didn't say, he, he didn't say we look into them for the sake of letting go. He said for the sake of, under, of seeing into things and understanding them. And I often wonder, why didn't he say let go? But when we really get intimate in the way they're talking about in Zen, when we become intimate with things, we start to know reality in a new way, in a very intimate way, in a wise way, in a beautiful, loving way. <clears throat> and when the understanding is complete, you don't have to let go. Letting go happens on its own. There's no you there to have to do it. Reality is just happening. And we are reality happening. So experience self-liberates. Or here's an old poem that expresses this quite beautifully from William Blake. He said, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy? He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies 
lives in eternity's sunrise. He who kisses the joys that flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Really, the, the, the whole dharma is in that couplet. That all we're doing here is giving a kiss to each moment, is saying hello. And saying hello, whether we like the moment or we don't like the moment, you don't have to like it. Have you ever noticed how you know when you don't like things? Everybody, everybody get that? You, like, you, you know when you don't like something? So I'm pointing it, you're already aware. We want to highlight the awareness of the not liking rather than the not liking, right? Or if I talked in more technical Buddhist terms, we're highlighting the awareness rather than the object of awareness, right? They're both known, they're both happening, but mostly we're aware of the object. We're not aware of the knowing itself. And it's happening here for everybody right here. You know what's happening right now. If you're tired, if you're bored, if you're interested, if you're excited, if you're confused, if you're thrilled, if you're ecstatic, if you're like, oh my God, when's he going to be quiet? Whatever. But you know that. Pay attention to the knowing for a moment. Because it shifts. It can shift our whole relationship to reality. Because one way you can understand reality is it's here for us to wake up. And this is from Rumi who said, if God said, Rumi, pay attention, pay homage, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. There would not be one experience in my life, not one thought, not one feeling, no act, I would not bow to. So this liberation that's possible, this waking up that's possible, this learning about reality, even though the reality we're pointing at is the reality sitting in your seat, in my seat, in each seat here. So that we don't have to do the Dharma, that reality, the Dharma is reality knowing itself. And who knows what's going to happen? Here, I'll read you a story that always has moved me, touched me, about um, Alison Wright. And um, Alison Wright, some of you may have read this. This, is, this version was in Yoga Journal many years ago. She said she was a practicing Buddhist and she was headed to a meditation retreat in India where she planned to sit for three silent weeks. And she was going to a retreat that a friend of ours was uh, leading, Christopher Titmus, who would lead a retreat every New Year's at Bodh Gaya. And she was going to Christopher's New Year's retreat. And she was uh, uh, in a bus and then the logging truck screeched around the corner in a remote Laotian jungle road and slammed into the bus she was riding on. And I'll spare you the physical details, but she was hurt. I mean, this was serious. Arms, all kinds of bad things, broken stuff. My back, pelvis, tailbone and ribs snapped immediately, etc., etc. And, and I could go on. There's more, but I'll, I'll be respectful of your sensitivity, actually. Um, And she talks about how difficult it was. And she said, so she was on, she was headed to a meditation retreat and instead she lay crushed and bleeding at the side of the road, struggling to draw in air. I imagined each breath to be my last. Breathing in, breathing out, consciously willing myself not to die. I concentrated on the life force fighting its way into my lungs. 
Along with my breath, pain became my anchor. As long as I could feel it, I knew I was alive. I thought back to the hours I had sat in meditation, fixated on the sensation of my leg falling asleep. That discomfort could hardly compare to the torment from the injuries, but I discovered that meditating could still help me focus and remain alert, and I'm convinced it saved my life. I managed to calm myself, slowing my heart rate and the bleeding, and I never lost consciousness or went into deep shock. In fact, I've never felt so aware. I've never felt so aware so clear-headed and completely in the present moment. And then she goes on. She said, you know, there was no help. They went to some clinic. It was, it was nothing there. Finally, a boy who looked to be barely in his teens, teens appeared, sloshed some alcohol on my wounds, and without using any painkillers, stitched up my arm. The agony was almost more than I could endure. Six hours passed. No more help arrived. Opening my eyes, I was surprised to see that darkness had fallen. That's when I became convinced I was going to die. As I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. I was released from my body and its profound pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. A perfect calm enveloped me. A bone-deep peace I could never have imagined. There was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. And she, she continues, she says, As I lay there, I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with every other. I realized that death only ends life, not this interconnectedness. A warm light of unconditional love encompassed me and I no longer felt alone. So let's sit for a minute. you all for your kind attention. We'll have about 25 minutes for walking meditation.